Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, not Thursday. Today is Tuesday, May 16th, 2023. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media Commentary Columnist Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And our Washington Commentary Columnist and Christine's colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. And joining us today, commentary contributing editor, host of the Reeducation podcast, and all uh, man about town, uh, bon vivant, uh, music lover, and general trivia, uh, Eli Lake. Hi, Eli. Thanks for coming on again. I, I feel like I had to be here for Durham Day. You had to be here for Durham Day. Of course, Eli has been covering the uh, investigations into Trump for commentary for, I think, six years now, maybe longer. Yeah, forever. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a series of blockbuster pieces about the, about the investigations and the FBI and the role of the FBI. And of course, that is central to the release yesterday of the report by uh, independent counsel, special prosecutor John Durham, former U.S. attorney in the state of Connecticut, who was tasked by Bill Barr, uh, the attorney general under Donald Trump, to investigate whether or not the investigations into Trump that began in 2016 and were originally known as Crossfire Hurricane by the FBI and others, whether the Russia investigations themselves involved perfidious conduct that rose to the level of criminal prosecution and Durham had Durham's report a report that he was obliged to produce we're going to get back to this by law uh is not was not his decision to release the report publicly the the declassification of the report he actually warns in the in the opening pages that it might be somebody should think long and hard about whether or not this should be released because there's some intelligence information in it that might have to be redacted whatever but it begins by saying, pursuant to the law, I have to write this report. I'm sending it to the Attorney General. He'll decide what to do with it. It was declassified and released yesterday into the investigation that he did over the space of really three years, though a lot of uh, media people are saying four in, a, in an effort to stretch it out and talk about how horrible it was that it went on for so long. But for three years uh, and in which um, he got one uh, one guilty plea uh, out of somebody and then had uh, prosecuted two people for felonious conduct who were acquitted. So um, the Durham report is the record of his investigation, period, and his conclusions about what it was. And I'm going to stop monologuing here except to say this. He says very pointedly at the beginning of the report that uh, there is a difference between illegal conduct or conduct that rises the level of felony or in which the uh, innocent until proven guilty standard has been so breached that you should prosecute somebody for it and whether or not there was wrongdoing and that wrong you can have wrongdoing that does not is not criminal or does not rot does not achieve a clarity in the case of individual people and their conduct that you would then like throw the book at them but that doesn't mean that Ill, Ill things weren't done, and this report is an account of the ill things that were done that, for many reasons, Durham did not believe that he had the goods to prosecute people on. 
Would that Eli Lake, as our resident expert on every jot and tittle of this matter, does that seem like a fair summary of? Yeah, I think was. Yes, and and even though Donald Trump has uh, claimed this is the crime of the century, more responsible voices. I mean, Attorney General Barr, for example, has sort of tried to prep people for this that. There were a lot of bad things that happened in this investigation, but it's not all going to be prosecutable. Um, and th- that's probably a good thing because I don't like um, the precedent of um, convicting, uh, you know, people. Who, it, it's I, I think it's a very high bar. Historically, there have been obviously prosecutions of senior FBI people in the 1970s following the church committee and um, various surveillance abuses. But even in those cases, the they ended up with very small fines and they were pardoned. And that part of that is because we don't want to get in a situation where we're a banana republic and the last president is constantly being harassed in lawfare and vice versa. We want these institutions, you know, we, we want to basically say that we can correct mistakes without, you know, using the full power and like sending people to jail, which is would make us more like Italy or Israel or you know, other or pre-Zelensky Ukraine or something. But I do um, want to say one thing before yeah. you go on. So again, in the liberal talking points yesterday and last night, there was all this. So Durham has run this investigation for four years and spent $6.5 million. What a waste of resources. Okay. So just to just to make it that money could have been that money could have been used to buy more opposition research from christopher Steele. i mean come on lawrence walsh in 1989 to 1990 whatever whatever the years lawrence walsh was 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 doing his dirt um he spent upwards of 50 million dollars on his investigation so that was 35 years ago. So let's try to put this in context. This was actually a relatively small scale investigation as far as these investigations. God knows how much money, by the way, uh, was spent on on Mueller. I mean, I'm sure there was a number somewhere. It's probably like 40 million. I mean, he had hundreds of people on staff. So this was actually a relatively compact, focused investigation looking at very specific moments in time at which decisions were made uh, at the highest levels of the FBI. And indeed, as we now know, reaching into at least one moment in the presence of the sitting president of the United States, Barack Obama. So that, that I just want to say, like, there's, but there's a lot of trashing of Durham going on uh, over the last 24 hours. And maybe if you don't like the fact this investigation, it's fine. But to go at him for being, you know, a spendthrift, you know, uh, going through Tiffany's, throwing things into baskets and buying them on credit, that is the wrong way to look at it. Anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. So let's let let's go through this. Durham says, let's talk about predication. Predication is that which must precede a decision to investigate something, right? Uh, or, right. Legally, predication is establishing a fact pattern that allows you to go and say, I need to dig into this heavily and go to judges or go to my bosses and all of this. That is predication. So what is it that Durham found on predication when it came to Trump and the Trump campaign's relationship with Russia, which the FBI started to investigate at the end of July 2016? They should have never launched a full investigation, full stop, known as Crossfire Hurricane. He goes into some persuasive, in my view, persuasive arguments, basically, that that the that Peter Strzok and FBI leadership violated the bureaus and the Justice Department's own guidelines in two respects. First, okay, of let's all, remind people who Peter Strzok was. Peter Strzok is the um, deputy chief of counterintelligence who opens the investigation at the FBI. At the FBI, known as uh, Crossfire Hurricane, he is now. You know, you can you can see him on MSNBC. You can hear him on the Lawfare podcast. He's teaching a class, I think, at Georgetown. Um, anyway, what. What Durham concludes is that in two respects, there was no reason to launch a full investigation as opposed to an assessment or a preliminary investigation. And these sounds like jargon, but it's vitally important because the full investigation means that the FBI has almost unlimited resources to do whatever they want. 
but it also means that they can send in confidential sources to surreptitiously record conversations with targets. They can do all they can use investigative techniques that they would be not not allowed to use if this was a preliminary investigation or, um, for that matter, uh, what was known as an assessment. Now, that's so it, he he says there were two kind of violations of different kinds of guidelines. The first one is that even I mean, this is extraordinary. It's kind of buried in there. But even struck himself is quoted uh, by another FBI official saying when this opened, there's nothing to this but we have to run it to ground. So the question is, why would you then uh, open it as a full investigation? And second, there is a rule that says if there is an, a potential to brush up against First Amendment activities, such as a presidential campaign, then the choice and use of investigative methods, I'm quoting here, should be focused in a manner that minimizes potential infringement of those rights, end of quote. So that's really important that there was there was existing guidelines at the FBI that said, hey, you, you should handle this really carefully if it's a presidential campaign. And it seemed to have been ignored, especially considering that what we had was a report of a conversation with George Papadopoulos that Durham goes to great lengths to say was ambiguous itself. The It was unclear what he meant. He said, well, we have some notion that maybe the Russians okay. Okay. might do something. Got to stop. Yes. It's so hard because, yeah, sorry, we're deep in the weeds, and we have so George Papadopoulos was a volunteer, yes. on the Trump campaign, a junior chipmunk who went to a conference and said something in the earshot of the of, Australian of, ambassador. No, no, the former. Um, Excuse me, the yes. former foreign minister Alexander Downer and another Australian diplomat. Okay, and then and this was then something. turned into like a referral to the FBI. Right. A and so then he the said something about how yeah. that, that they, they took to be a sign that Trump, the Trump campaign was colluding with Russia, took right. it to the FBI and that incident alone, period, nothing else. That is what led Peter struck led to the opening of this full investigation. One conversation at a bar, something like that. At a with no supporting evidence yes, whatsoever. It's, it, it's even worse than that. And I want to quote now from the report. These are facts, by the way, that were listed that the FBI either rationalized away or just ignored. And one of them, the first one is the Australian diplomats told Crossfire Hurricane investigators that Papadopoulos never stated that he had any direct contact with the Russians nor did he provide any explicit information about an offer of assistance. So it's an, a, an inference of an inference. Furthermore, the, the, like, there was no effort to try to run it down before opening the full investigation. It was just kind of taken on faith, here we go. And that itself is the why, why Durham said in 2019 that he disagreed with the Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz that the case was properly predicated. He says, no, it was not. Okay. Now, let's go to the other point that is made in the report about fairness. Right. Uh, in other words, like the law, if anything we know about the law, the law has to be applied fairly, meaning you can't arrest and indict and, you know, prosecute somebody for one thing while ignoring exactly the same thing by somebody else, let's just say. So... Right. What Durham says here in terms of the FBI's malfeasance is that while it dove headfirst into the Trump campaign's behavior, there were various signs of misbehavior on the part of the Clinton campaign, the Democratic campaign for the presidency during an administration of a, of a Democratic president, that it did not look into. And therefore, you had a you had um, in you know unbalanced treatment of these two campaigns in relation to the FBI and its investigation of Russian either Russian <clears throat> interference or the promotion of the idea that there was Russian interference can, in the election. Can I interject here because I think it's uh, interesting what you're bringing up. <clears throat> So there wasn't any fairness, it seems, 
in regard to Russian interference or Russian disinformation um, channeled through both the Trump and the Hillary Clinton campaigns. However, I think we need to understand the context in which all of this is happening, and that is the 2016 election in which the FBI was investigating Hillary Clinton's emails. Right. So the and all of whenever we get into the weeds of the Russia investigation, I I get lost very quickly. I'm still looking for that professor who was with the yeah Mifsud, right? Yeah, the Cypriot professor, and he was hanging out with Stefan Halper, who's uh, this critic of neoconservatism, who somehow was an agent of the uh, you know he was uh, surveying Carter Page for the FBI, and then there's this others, and he's talking to the Cypriot professor who disappeared. I'm still looking for him. I don't know if he shows up in the Durham report or not, but that's an example of how you can so easily get lost in this hall of mirrors. The same yeah. way people did, by the way, with Iran-Contra. And John, you mentioned the Walsh investigation. That lasted seven years. Thank so, you. Yes. So the Durham investigation, you know, is um, saved us some money, I guess. My point being, all of this news to me reflects back on the terrible FBI leadership of James Comey. Oh, yes. Okay? Because it was Comey's monumental self-regard. Anytime anyone starts comparing himself to Reinhold Niebuhr, that's when my alarm bells start ringing, okay? His monumental self-regard made him believe he was going to be the arbiter of the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. Yes. And because he decided to investigate Hillary and then make that public announcement, oh, well, we're not going to charge Hillary, even though she did commit crimes with her emails, I'm not going to charge her, and then drop that and then show up a week before the election and say, actually, now we've reopened the investigation into Hillary because of the images. Uh, two weeks before. Two weeks before. Thank you. And two then, by the way, and and right and three days before the election, he then announces we didn't. Oh, it's find closed. Anything. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and in the midst, in the in between those two events, right, that's when Crossfire Hurricane is launched in the summer of 2016. So here's Comey here again saying, oh, no, we can't have. Any Russian influence, we have to f figure out whether Trump is a danger to American civilization. Well, let's open this investigation, even though it does it has there's no predicate for it, and it doesn't it doesn't um, deserve to be um, pursued in the way that they pursued it. Well, oh, and, and he and he. Than, and, go ahead, sorry. Well, I was just going to add to that that Com it's very clear. Then, if you look at uh, the Durham report, that that effort on Comey's part had several his his sort of immediate minions in the FBI pursued a very clear strategy of which he was the head because there are these interesting moments where you know junior officers come and say you know we can't really we want to talk about the steel dossier because this doesn't make any sense and a very high ranking FBI official uh whose name I'm forgetting right now um says no we're not going to we're not a, a deputy assistant counterintelligence Dina Corsi she says we're not going to have any more written memos about that we don't want to which which sounds no paper weird. trail no paper trail to discuss the problems that other agents had found with this dossier and the motivate it's it's the motivation uh distinction that bothers me here because F FBI investigators are supposed to be politically neutral, which means they have to look at the motivations of any of their any of the actors in any investigation, including the people providing them with supposed evidence of wrongdoing. They have to wonder what is what's in it for them. They did not do that with any of the evidence presented to them by uh, that that went against Trump, and they took Hillary Clinton and her campaign at her at their word every time. Well, okay, just to get to the even worse than that standard that we have now established, where Eli says it's even worse than Matt said it's even worse, and you just said it's even worse. My even worse is that um, in relation to possible contacts with uh, with Russia or efforts uh, with Russia or whatever. One of the fairness matters, uh, impartial administration of justice matters that Durham raises is that the Hillary and the Hillary campaign were briefed. Oh, yeah. On what the FBI was doing. And Trump was not briefed until James Comey flew up to New York in January or December. To brief him on disinformation from right. the Clinton campaign. Right. Amazing. Right. Amazing. But they didn't go to the Trump campaign and say, 
there's some evidence that there's hanky panky in your just so you know we're looking into this and we're telling you because we respect the american political system and you are the nominee of one of the two major political parties and you might be president we're telling the other team that we're looking into this and so we're going to tell you so they didn't tell them now you understand the psychological reason that they didn't tell them which is that they all believed that trump was a russian agent which is the key point here i i that is not something that Durham says, but it's the whole the report is suffused with the idea that the minute that somebody said, well, Trump is a Russian agent, everybody in the Democratic ambit said, oh, that's got to be true. So let's look into it right now. Now, it's, okay, I, mean, I know that that's yeah. true because I myself was so puzzled by Trump's behavior that I thought in july of 2016 that he might be a russian agent like everybody who was like a who was like somebody who has been following it's like what is he doing why is he talking this way about putin what is the matter with him does putin have something on him so this was in the air like this was not that what i'm saying here was not like oh my god you know it's like that's why the fbi has to be held to an incredibly high standard because everybody sits around going, well, he must be doing that. He must be a, an agent. But we don't get to apply the full force of the federal government and those unlimited resources that Eli is talking about when we have idle speculation, when we're sitting around, you know, uh, you know, in a bull session about what 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 the hell is motivating this crazy guy, Trump, at the head of the Republican ticket. I, I, I want to just there's another correlation. Can, can I just add to what, one, uh, one yeah, point to sure. that? Um, the thing that is so startling, and this this goes beyond the the, the Durham investigation and the FBI uh, FBI's conduct, is that there's a very large group of people who felt the way John describes that. Oh well, Trump must be a Russian Russian agent. Who still today believe that, um, despite what what has been uh, uh, refuted, despite Durham, despite all of it. That sentiment still motivates, on some level, um, a lot of animus against Trump. One last oh, thing on this yes. regard, and then we, which is the Obama administration, Hillary, the Hillary campaign, the foreign policy minds in the Democratic Party in 2016 suddenly got incredibly alarmed about Russians in our system, right? Who was the guy? who in 2012 at a presidential debate made fun of the Republican candidate for president for saying that Russia was our leading antagonist on the planet. And who told Medvedev uh, during that same campaign that this is his last election, and so he'll have more flexibility to strike deals yeah. with Russia. With the guy, by the way, Medvedev, who is now to Putin's right yeah. in yeah. how to treat so, uh, Ukraine right. threatening, in the West. Threatening first strike <laughs> yeah. nuclear right. attacks. Right. So my point here is that the Democratic Party under under Obama spent years poo-pooing the Russian threat to the extent, in my view, that the attack on Trump during 2016 on his connections with Russia, his talk about Putin, fell a little flat because talk about no, there, no predicate had been established as a consensus opinion in the United States in the 20 teens, that Putin was a terrible actor and a, and a bad threat. There were people in the Obama administration like Tory Newland who like, you know, were upset about Kiev and Crimea and, 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 and Ukraine. And we did various things, but Obama had undercut any possibility of the idea that the United States was in an antagonistic relationship with Russia and that Russia was a terrible danger to the United States with his conduct during that campaign. And then four years later, we're supposed to suddenly turn on a dime on a heel and say, this is unconscionable how this person is talking about Putin. I agree it was unconscionable, but they don't get to say so. I'm sorry. They threw that away when they made fun of Romney predicting, in effect, that Putin was going to go and take another, take a giant bite out of out of Ukraine in 2014. And Obama's like, "Oh, you're so oh, it's like the 1980s. You're so old. <laughs> I'm I'm so young and cool and hip. You know, it's like go blow you 
hypocritical. But Obama made it sound much more elegant than that, John. When Obama talks, it's much more ele- it's much more elegant. That's why I want to fall remove for it. the elegance and get yeah, to the you're raw, getting you're getting to the heart, peeling, the heart of the matter. Yes. Yeah, I'm peeling T2's <laughs> face off and showing the skeleton, or you know, peeling Schwarzenegger and showing the robot underneath. Okay, let's mo- move on from this. What? So we have cross. Well, I, I just want to make a very yeah, important please. point about please. We've there's been it's now conventional wisdom. That in 2016, the FBI treated Hillary Clinton's campaign very unfairly because at the last minute, you know, Comey felt he had to, you know, announce that he was reopening it only to like two days before the election saying, okay, we checked, it's fine. That is not true. The reality is that James Comey and the FBI and FBI leadership went out of its way time and again to give Clinton every benefit of the doubt. And what Durham gets into here, which I think is really important, is that for the final months of the campaign, there was basically no investigative activity on the Clinton Foundation, which would probably give you more connections to Russia than whatever they had with Trump. Two, there was a confidential human source for the FBI who made a contribution and then promised much more of a contribution to the Clinton campaign on behalf of a foreign power. That sounds like a pretty big deal. And then the confidential human source was said, stop doing anything with the Clinton campaign. And she got a defensive briefing. So there are all these examples of Clinton getting a very special treatment, whether it's defensive briefings, whether, you know, it's like, ah, this is really bad, but no reasonable prosecutor would do it. All this stuff. Uh, or like you can you can have your lawyers who are also subject of the investigation sit in on your interview with us. All this special treatment. I mean, remember, In the email investigation, and I was somewhat sympathetic at the time to Clinton on this for other reasons, the actual tech, if you remember, uh, destroyed all the archives that had been subpoenaed by Congress as well and what the FBI Mm -hmm. wanted to look at. And that nothing came of that. That guy didn't end up getting to jail or pressured, you know, to have the book thrown at him if he doesn't, you know, flip and so forth. Or, for example, the idea that the FBI itself had to go through all of the pertinent emails that allegedly were or impertinent emails that were purged from the email investigation only to find that there were lots of stuff that were purged that were really pertinent from their perspective. So there were all kinds of breaks that Clinton got from the FBI as it. And then you compare that to what they did to the Trump campaign on nothing on the inference of an inference. And it's very clear there were two standards of justice here. One for Trump, the outsider, the other for Clinton, the insider. And that is why, as Dorham correctly says, Crossfire Hurricane did grave reputational damage to the entire FBI. And it is still something that, unfortunately, many of our elites have yet to really come to terms with. Um, I Rant think over. You, you know, I think what you say is important in this respect, because this is where we get into why it's bad that the FBI gets involved in things that are going on around political campaigns. Yes. Because because they knew there was an investigation of Hillary and because the investigation of Hillary bore some fruit, such that, as Matt alludes to, on July 5th, 2016, James Comey comes out and says, we're not bringing charges against Hillary Clinton. But she but 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 she did something illegal, but we're not bringing charges, but she did something illegal in our opinion. At the time on our blog, I said that Comey should resign because what he either he had just done something unbelievably infamous, which is if he's going to close an investigation into Hillary Clinton without indicting her, what he did was an act of governmental abuse. We don't need to know whether he thinks that she could ha- he could have indicted her, but he didn't. He chose to close the investigation. He could have announced that in a press release and said, we have found nothing because she is an American citizen and she is innocent until proven guilty and nothing, and he did not achieve he did not, you know, break through the innocent until proven guilty standard to find enough to attempt to indict her uh, on charges of obstruction of justice. Or 
he should have indicted her. One or the other. You don't get to do both. What he did was defame her without charging her. And that was an infamous and horrible piece of behavior, in my opinion, whether you like Hillary or not. By the way, same thing with the Mueller report. The Mueller right. report defames Trump in the campaign and all these people had nothing yeah. to do with collusion like Barbara Ledeen. And then yeah. it ends up, you know, nobody gets charged for any of it, but they decided to put it out there anyway. Right. And yet, right. you know, Andrew Weissman and Nicole Wallace will tell you that this was the greatest report in the history yeah. of reporting. Right. But so I just want to get so. What when I say this is bad, what I mean is like they know that they're investigating Hillary Clinton. So it's like, well, we can't investigate her for the other three. Yeah. What are we going to do? Bring up another investigation against her and the Clinton Foundation? Like, that's not fair. Like, we want her to be effectively. It's like, look, we want her to win the presidency. How do we have to keep doing things that are going to make it harder for her to do that? And then that raises implicitly the question of, when this comes up with Trump, they're like, well, we should really investigate this because, you know, it's really not fair. Hillary had like 18 months of an FBI investigation into her, and that really hurt her. Let, let's see if we can hurt Trump equally or do stuff that might hurt Trump because that will even it out. That's where well, you okay, get into. OK, what it, no, in the sense that during the OK, so during the actual campaign, the election, the, the word this stuff really didn't get out. It was only after Trump wins and we don't have a, I mean, listen, there was, oh, a, there no, that's not true. That is not true. Can I tell well, you why? Uh, yeah. Well, the Which stuff, story. you mean the FBI stuff? I'm saying that there was, there, there was, there was some reporting that suggested that there might be some interest from the FBI, but then remember they had the famous Halloween story from the New York times that said they couldn't find any clear links, which happened to be true. Right. And then it's only after Trump wins that we see what, some people, I, I, by the way, the Durham does not give us any further uh, clarity on this, but there was something, there was a text about the insurance policy. It seems like this investigation was sort of an insurance policy in the sense that that's when we really start finding out about it. And then it's a few, and then it's like two months into Trump's presidency that Comey again announces an ongoing investigation, even though by that point there was nothing uh, that 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 bureau had to suggest that there was anything there, and they should have closed it by then. But the point is, is that it was after he wins that we see then this investigation used as a way to hamstring his presidency. Uh, I just want to read one passage here because here's the key: like everything gets confused because we keep thinking that this was all started by the Steele dossier, this you know no. intelligence file that Hillary paid for. That is, you know, everything in it is is bullshit um, and is made up uh, by this guy, Igor Donchenko, in some fashion or other, which is pretty much spelled out here in laborious detail, and as it was in previous reporting. But uh, according to the declassified Clinton plan intelligence on July 26, 2016, this is months before the Steele dossier was known about. Clinton allegedly approved a proposal from one of her foreign policy advisors to tie Trump to Russia as a means of distracting the public from her use of a private email server. Uh, our office interviewed a number of individuals connected with the campaign as part of its investigation into the Clinton plan intelligence. One foreign policy advisor stated that she did not specifically remember proposing a plan to Clinton or other leadership to stir up a scandal. Foreign policy advisor one stated, however, that it was possible she had proposed ideas on these topics to the campaign's leadership who may have approved these ideas. The campaign leadership that we're talking about here, one of the people is currently the national security advisor of the United States. That's Jake Sullivan. And we know that because the this campaign uh, both sort of trumped up a charge, let's just say, a, about uh, a a transshipment of money between Trump and the Trump campaign and a bank called the Alpha Bank. It wasn't it wasn't the money. It was that it was me, the not money. Servers of Alpha Bank were had suspicious oh, right. communications with servers from the Trump organization. Okay, I apologize. Right. Okay. So, um, and how do we know about that? Well, it turns out that the Clinton campaign told this to the FBI. And then the Clinton campaign released information in the form of a memo from Jake Sullivan, now the National Security Advisor of the United States, saying the FBI is looking into the Alpha Bank. 
So it's like if I say to you, you know, it's like they 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 wrote the letter that said the Alpha Bank is bad. And then they said, we hear the FBI is investigating whether the Alpha Bank is bad. Um, so that is not this is where we get into what's criminal, what's not criminal, but bad. So that's not criminal, but it's really bad. Can, can I read really can bad? I, can I, I just want to read a quote yeah. from the New York, the okay. New York Times story on the Durham report. And this is I just you have to I'm just going to read it because it's hilarious. Mr. Durham repeated his own insinuations presented in court filings that information developed by Hillary Clinton's campaign had helped fuel the Russian investigation, which shadowed nearly two years of Mr. Trump's presidency and was eventually overseen by special counsel Robert S. Mueller. How is that an insinuation? That is a checkable and obvious fact. Okay, but wait, you have the Steele dossier, which was paid for by the Clinton campaign to obtain a FISA on Carter Page. And that was not the only use of the Steele dossier. They used the Alpha Bank stuff provided by Michael Sussman to to the Michael Sussman, a Clinton campaign official. Okay, but but I have to I have to jump in and say the New York Times has an obvious tell when it comes to wanting to bury news that's bad for Democrats. And the tell is in is is in this story, which which says Mr. Durham's 306 page report revealed little substantial new information. Whenever you see that, that means they are completely putting blinders on and trying to get their readers to avoid delving into all the new information that we've spent almost the last hour discussing. Maybe maybe this That's is a, a tell. Maybe this is a good opportunity to shift toward the fallout or consequences yes. of the report. It seems to me there, you know, uh, this report affects maybe three institutions. Uh, the first is the FBI, of course. The second is the media, uh, which uh, entwined itself with the FBI and the Clinton campaign. Uh, and then the third is Trump. And I'll just take the Trump piece because I want to hear from uh, Eli on uh, the media and on the FBI. But uh, it's clear that Trump is spinning this uh, report as a vindication um, that uh, he did nothing wrong, that there should never have been uh, an investigation. There should never have been a Mueller investigation. And perhaps his entire presidency, who knows, his entire presidency could have gone in a different direction had there never been an operation uh, crossfire hurricane. Uh, look, Trump has bragging rights here. Um, this has always been, in my view, a politicized uh, mess. Um, Trump was helped by a man he now uh, loathes, uh, former Attorney General Bill Barr, who saw it as a politicized mess and who uh, helped Trump negotiate, uh, navigate the, the release of the Mueller report, and I think spared Trump a lot of trouble. Um, but now Trump rejects Barr, and Barr is a critic of Trump. Uh, it also, I think, in light of coming off of Trump's uh, rise in the polls and the CNN town hall last week, further legitimates Trump as an act, as a major force in American politics, because he can now say, as he runs for president, Russia's behind me. I Durham showed I am uh, I'm Scott, Scott free. Uh, I got off Scott free or he doesn't get off Scott free, but I'm clean. Uh, and uh, now I can move on and talk to you about how uh, we're going to create the futuristic cities and send uh, drug dealers uh, to death row. Right. And so this, I think from Trump's perspective, this is a plus. Yes. And, and just to add one beat to that, which I think is a really important point uh, that Matt's making, you know that Trump is going to use this and has used it effectively already because the standard by which liberal mainstream media is judging the Durham report is Trump's standard. It had to be a crime of the century, right? They, they're, that's the bar. They're taking that as the bar and then saying, oh, well, this is a nothing burger because it, it isn't the crime of the century. No one was prosecuted. But that shows, I mean, th there's a weird way in which it's also feeding into the media's need to keep Trump as a constant antagonist. Um, let's also talk about the media fallout. And the media fallout is this. I watched uh, sort of like as they announced that the Durham report was about to be released at 4 p.m. So I turn on, first I turn on CNN and then I turn on MSNBC. So CNN, uh, Jake Tapper said, this report in some respects indicates Donald Trump. 
Then I turned to MSNBC, where I am nominally still a contributor, though I doubt I will ever be on air again, particularly after what I'm about to say here. You're um, like a contributing editor. I'm a contributing editor like yeah, Eli. Well, no, Eli, Eli is unlike most contributing editors. Eli appears here and on the yeah, in the yeah. pages of commentary, and I do right. not appear on MSNBC no, anymore. That's right. And as I say, uh, here comes here 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 comes the uh, here you know the hook. Now here's the permanent hook. Nicole Wallace has on Andrew Weissman. Uh, Andrew Weissman is a uh, prosecutor who were who was essentially ran the Mueller investigation. And they spend 20 minutes saying essentially a series of things about this investigation. One, basically, Durham is a Shonda. He's a he's a terrible, terrible person who uh, was once good, but is now bad. And he had no business uh, doing... First of all, he doesn't know what the FBI does. And he doesn't know, and he shouldn't be opining about the FBI and what it does, even though... He just spent four years investigating the FBI, right? And anyway, Michael Horowitz, the FBI investigator general, uh, already reported about what the FBI did in the course of this Trump-Russia investigation in 2019. And Horowitz said that there were bad things, but he also said that it was okay that there was an investigation into Trump, which is what Durham says should never have happened. And so on the one hand, we're to take Horowitz at his word that he was right about how the FBI should have investigated. On the other hand, MSNBC employs Peter Strzok, Peter Strzok, that head of counterintelligence for the FBI, who was fired by the FBI as a result of the Horowitz investigation and its findings into his malfeasance um, and anyway, uh, Durham had an assist, had an associate named Lisa Dennehy who quit the Durham investigation. And what was that about? Why did she quit? What, 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 where's the smoke there? And, uh, the investigation was a flop because, uh, one person, he got a guilty plea from one person who shamefully on Andrew Weissman's part, he said that this guy, Michael Kleinsmith of the FBI, was just trying to characterize things in a good way, so he screwed up his wording. This guy lied about the about the uh, material facts that led to uh, a uh, the ability of the FBI to track. No, no, no. Uh, he, he 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 changed the meaning of a communication from the CIA that said right. that Carter Page was actually a helpful and useful informant. Right. Okay. To mean right. that he so had he, he was that. not helpful. Which would be the opposite of what he was being told, right? So, for the purposes of the FISA, right. in order to get to allow, right. what I was going to say is to allow the government to uh, to basically live inside Carter Page, this other Trump aide's jacket, and see and hear everything that he did, which is a standard with for an American citizen that is unbelievably high. It's supposed to be unbelievably high. For the for people to have this kind of surveillance, for the government to have this kind of surveillance power over an American citizen, and the Kleinsmith was only trying to make things help look better, and in fact, what he did was he he changed, he altered a, a, a you know government document, uh, which is a very serious matter, and then it was so the investigation was a flop, and Trump's going to use it, so that's bad, and. All they did was just like they hadn't even read the report yet. And basically, they defamed Durham. They defamed, they said Durham had done something unethical because his his assistant, his longtime associate quit, that he was bad, his investigation was stupid, and basically that he shouldn't have written a report, which by law he was required to do. So um, this is how the media, and particularly that show, Nicole Wallace's show, which is basically the Trump two-hour hate, you know, two-hour hate of Trump show every day from four to six, that the media is saying, what else can I say about, you know, I'm anything I can say about Durham, I'm going to say 
because this ruins or or complicates my narrative. Um, and don't think it's not going to go on. It is going to go on every day for the next two weeks, particularly if Trump does what Matt says. Two weeks. It could go on for the next six years. Right. I find it it amazing that Andrew Weissman would say John Durham shouldn't opine about the FBI. John Durham is responsible for the prosecution of the corrupt FBI agents who had protected Whitey Bulger in Boston. And that was a very hard case to investigate. We're going after senior people in the bureau and he was the one who pulled that off for weissman to say that somebody who was rebuked unanimously by the supreme court in the arthur anderson case somebody who invented enforcement standards for farah during the trump years which obviously did not apply to prominent democrats like charles dolan or for that matter hunter you're Biden. talking here you're talking here about andrew weissman himself i'm talking about, about andrew George. weissman himself okay yeah. andrew weissman is an utter disgrace. And if he cared about our country and the legitimacy of our judicial system, he would offer voluntarily to take a 30-year vow of silence. This is somebody who has done more to erode public confidence in our judicial system than almost anybody that I can imagine. And my hope is that one day law schools will teach Andrew Weissman as a cautionary tale, precisely the kind of prosecutor that we should never have in this country, because he is, in my view, un-American, and he undermines this country's very rule of law. Screw him. He's totally the worst. There. Rant over. Um, second rant of the morning. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it, uh, it's, it, it is look, should Durham have been appointed? You could make the case that Durham in the end didn't need to be appointed because Horowitz, because as Christopher Ray, the current head of the FBI, also somebody, by the way, who Trump has turned on because for whatever reason, his response to the Durham report was to say, as a result of the failings that we that he documents here and that we investigated in 2019, major changes have been made in personnel and conduct at the FBI to address these very matters. So the FBI didn't turn around and say Durham's report is nonsense. They said, essentially, he's right, and we have already spent the last couple of years trying to fix what he describes in his report was broken that's that's without indicting people that's what he's saying john yeah but i worry that we're about to plunge headlong into a repeat of 2016 with the fbi and the justice department interfering in the operations of an election we're already there we have trump uh the target of a special prosecutor jack smith on his actions related to January 6th and on his uh, fairing of his of classified documents from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. We also have the Justice Department and a U.S. attorney investigating Hunter Biden, right? And I think we're setting ourselves up for a replay where Christopher Wray now will have to uh, be, or his boss, Merrick Garland, will be presented with choices they have to make. Do they initiate legal action that could be construed as interference in the election? When uh, the raid or the search of Mar-a-Lago was authorized last summer, that's exactly the type of criticism that faced the Justice Department and kind of, it seems to me, kind of backed Garland into appointing a special prosecutor for Trump, but not appointing a special prosecutor for Hunter Biden. Um, this, this, But he did appoint a special prosecutor for Biden's mishandling, potential mishandling of yes, classified true. There's, information. Okay, so there's a, that, clear, I, there is the parallelism there. I forgot that, about that, that one. Durham, that Durham attacks in relation to Trump and 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 Hillary You're in right. 2016. Okay, okay. so the, I had forgot about the yeah. the the, thir- the special prosecutors are multiplying at such a rapid rate. I forget about them. I forgot about the the guy who uh is is uh looking into Biden's handling of classified information. Again and again we're being confronted with the intervention of our federal law enforcement and intelligence apparatus into electoral politics. And people are going to have to make hard choices and resist the temptation, 
resist that sin of pride, which I think Comey succumbs to every morning when he looks in the mirror, to, to become agents themselves in an election. And I fear that, yeah, Christopher Ray seems, he's saying that he's trying to implement processes uh, to prevent this from happening. Does Merrick Garland feel the same way? Right. Um, we just don't know. Um, Abe, let me just ask you this. It's not just that the FBI might 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 behave badly, but we we have the reaction to the 2016 election and Trump's victory, the desperate effort by liberals to try to find an exogenous reason for Trump winning other than Hillary being a terrible candidate, people not liking ideas of the Democratic Party and Trump saying things that people hadn't said before in politics and they look for right Russia, Russia's doing it or Facebook is doing it and Twitter is doing it and social media did it and they hypnotized people through their algorithms and destroyed American democracy. And therefore, government agencies, government agencies, uh, Eli said that Durham talks about how the First Amendment rights of a political candidate in the course of a presidential campaign are supposed to be paramount, right? But the political speech in the United States... Uh, Democrats are absolutely committed to the idea that government has the right and the power to try to convince these companies to limit political speech because of the dangers posed by the people who are doing the speaking. Now, we do agree, classically, you can't say fire in a crowded theater. You're not supposed to, like, get people together to blow up, you know, to, to run a consp illegal conspiracy. And if you do that online. It's no different from doing it in the mails, I suppose. But they literally believe in using the power of government or like inter trying to intercede with the way these companies work for what is essentially political advantage, even though they themselves don't think it's so they think just like Democrats in 2016, who suddenly got all righteous about the dangers from Russia. They loved Facebook in 2012 because Facebook got Obama elected. They don't like Facebook in 2016 because it didn't prevent Trump from being elected or it helped Trump from being elected. And now they continue to want to run social media companies and convince them to do things that that are uh, infamous and, against speech. And media companies, right? I mean, yeah. uh, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're trying to shame CNN for having Trump on. The, 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 so far, front runner in the in the in the for, for the for the GOP in the presidential race, it is. I think it's some some way to look at it. It is the ultimate manifestation of cancel culture. They're they're sort of they're trying to cancel Trump. Um, they're they're using the language of cancel Trump. I can't believe CNN platformed him. Um, this is the stuff that they use that activists say against uh, conservatives who who speak on on campuses. Um, my question is to what extent this rebounds against them. Um, it's it's hard to say because uh, you know, in some sense, Trump is a is sort of the worst person to carry the message that that uh, they are they are sort of trying to cancel you, us, any conservatives uh, into into oblivion. Um, but it plays out again and again and again. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's. That's what we have to say about the Durham report. And uh, we there's probably more to be said, and there's going to be more to be said about the reaction to it, which is going to be ongoing, which is that on the one hand, Durham's a flop. And on the other hand, how dare he? He's a monster. And he's, you know, and then, and now this is going to be the new narrative, as Abe says. It's like Durham is going to get Trump elected. You'll see. Durham ends his career infamously carrying water that's another funny part about this was there's all this like durham is doing trump's bidding what's in it for durham to do trump's bidding like bill barrow appointed him is now trump's like you know trump trump just you know slanders and defames him every day on true social like durham's got no i mean this is the whole thing i mean durham's got no horse in this race except the prosecutor's bias toward the belief that the person that he's investigating did probably did something and he should get him like that. That's, that's one of the problems. Yeah, except, except he showed, 
incredible restraint in some ways. Now, listen, yeah. I thought the Sussman and the Danchenko, I mean, they were weird uh, prosecutions. They were kind of getting them on these technicalities. You lied right. to the FBI when really, as we read in this report, the FBI is is the main culprit here. Yeah. But right. as opposed to Andrew Weissman, who wants to prosecute everybody and threaten to prosecute right. everybody and use the law as this weapon against whoever he's like, you know, like a Bobby Kennedy. Yeah. It's terrible. Eli, like we are going to ask you. Uh, we've only been doing the commentary recommends for a couple of weeks, and uh, I, I do not want to turn this into for people who are listening. I do not want to turn this into the guest appearance person gets to do commentary recommends because this really is our official but you are on the masthead of commentary. all right yeah okay thank you, you very much being editor for, on the masthead of commentary for this, and for this one exception and okay. therefore uh i am thrilled to ask you to do today's commentary recommends okay so here's my commentary recommends when i was putting together my part one and part two of my uh my podcast my monologues on bobby kennedy I did do sort for of for your podcast, the, the re-education, which, which everyone listen, should. Yes. Okay. I, uh, I, I, I got, I did, I had to get into uh, some research about Frank Sinatra and his relationship with Jack Kennedy and the mob. And so that got me into uh, kind of rediscovering his great catalog. So first of all, read the late Terry teach out uh, in the pages of commentary on Frank Sinatra. His writing on Frank is great. My commentary recommends is Sinatra at the Sands. It is a brilliant record. Quincy Jones is the musical director. The orchestra is Count Basie, which is uh, one of the greatest jazz orchestras ever. And you not only get Sinatra really in this prime um, live as a great artist, there's also Frank Sinatra stand-up. I swear to God, you get like vintage 1964 Sinatra making jokes like Dean Martin's been stoned more times than the U.S. Embassy in uh, in in Saigon, which I think is great. Um, some of it doesn't age as well. Um, so Sinatra at the Sands, uh, it's one of the best kind of uh, records. It's it's really almost a jazz record. Um, I think you'll you'll enjoy it. There's not a bad track on it. If if you Eli, you might like uh, Andy Ferguson's classic essay on Sinatra. He will not like it because well, I commissioned that essay. It's in the <laughs> Weekly Standard, and Andy trashes Sinatra. Okay, three thousand words. He, I should read it. There he are a few paragraphs. It. There are a few he, paragraphs that are respectful. It kind of says, the to be like, sure paragraph. To be sure, and Tony to be sure. better. It's an <laughs> infamy. It's a shot, and it just goes to show it's a brilliant what, piece. What a large-hearted editor I yes. am. You are, and capacious. You are. That I was so enraged by this piece, and yet I published it. I published no. it, even though I consider it a slander against the single greatest singer of the 20th century. Yeah. And, and Terry Teachout, by the way, really his work is great on this. Yes. Um, I'm not that crazy about Sinatra. Like mid sixties Sinatra is where he starts getting like very mannered. And the, the single greatest thing about Sinatra as a singer in his greatest period was how unmannered he was so much so that, you know, Nobody could imitate him, really. Yeah. He, was not, he was inimitable, and he dedicated himself to interpretations of the songs with this, you know, velvet voice. And then when he started with the Rat Pack and everything, and then he got his own record label, uh, there's a lot of shtick in the I, singing. I, the, sort of, but I okay. would say that what's so great about this is that he he really does kind of meld with the band itself. And yeah. the musicians themselves, and he kind of—it's almost like he's a jazz soloist, and that he—you could—you could really feel it. It's like you know, he classically would want to perform in the center of an orchestra as opposed to in front of it, and that's the thing. He it was—he feels like he's part of an organic whole. It's—I it's, I really love it. Well, the first song on that album, uh, which is um, uh, "Street of Dreams," uh, is with Count Basie, who had the sharpest of all the big bands like the yeah. it, like like kind of like synchronized swimming or something like the yeah. the crispness the tight the tightness the yeah. tightness and the crispness yeah. of the band and sinatra singing where he was not mannered this is the one song in which he is not in the least mattered on this album is absolutely 
staggering. But I still say, if you want a Sinatra album, you go for Songs for Swing and Lovers. That that's that's the, 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 the Nelson Riddle any, years are classic. Yeah. yeah, and and any of the Capitol. Uh, yeah, uh, any of the Capitol records, right? Except maybe there's one one or two that Gordon Jenkins was the uh, orchestrator on, and Jenkins was kind of. The, there were a few towards the end that were weird, but but they were yeah. but they're still there's he still sounds terrific in them, and they're and yeah. they're interesting. Yeah, I but. But I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I sort of, and I love Frank Sinatra, but the when he's live in general, he he invests something in the performance in, in the in the audience that takes away from the performance from his from the singing itself. Um, and like, and you can really see it when you watch TV clips of him, like in the '60s. They're all a blast. They're a lot of fun when he's he sings yeah. with with Elvis or whomever. Uh, 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 appearances with Dean Martin. Uh, yeah. uh, 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 he's having a great time. He really doesn't sound that good. And sometimes he's sometimes he's in fact barely singing. He's sort of talking his way through the song, um, and it's yeah. a, it's a very different voice. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is, yeah. He was the he was the greatest American singer, uh, and maybe you know. I mean, a lot of people, including people who are you know, who believe obviously that like classical musicians or classical singers are, mm. are better than pop singers, you know, because they're, they have these monstrous voices that come out of nowhere, you know, like Pavarotti or something like that, or Enrico Caruso or whoever you want to say, but it's very hard to argue with the idea that, uh, that, that he was not in terms of, uh, in terms of his historical importance, like he, he, had, uh, he, Bing Crosby invented modern singing and Frank Sinatra blew Bing Crosby away. Yes. And basically then recorded the entirety of there is not a song that Sinatra did not record from the great period of songwriting between the 1910s and the 1960s. Um, that will not, in, they will, those songs will endure because he recorded them. Those recordings are going to be the recordings in 2250 that people will listen to of that work he is its greatest interpreter and he is i think it's you know he is the thing that will he is the vessel in which they will be captured and remain fresh and, and whole um eli i just want to bring up one thing that we talked about and then we can go on your podcast this week uh, which is about um the media atmosphere and you interview ben smith uh former editor of BuzzFeed and the author of this new book, Traffic, you play in the course of your podcast this absolutely astounding song called The Newsroom. Yes, Welcome never, to the Newsroom. Which I've never heard. And you gave me the whole, I don't want, you don't have to go into dilate on the uh, the existence of this it's a, it's uh, a, song. It's a, it's a rare record by Lonnie Hewitt, who was a member of the group called War, which you may know from Spill the Wine with Eric Burden. And he, this is a solo project, and it's basically, it's him coping with his depression. <laughs> so the song Welcome to the Newsroom is about how everybody in the newsroom just delights in, you know, reporting on murder and earthquakes and other natural disasters. <laughs> anyway, so it's, yeah. from the, it's from the 70s, and it sounds like Philadelphia Soul or some kind of combination of yeah. the Chilites and the Spinners, and I don't know what else, and it's absolutely transfixing so if you want if you want my recommendation my su sub recommendation is listen to eli's re-education podcast this week and around eight minutes in i think you'll get it's to hear 18 this. minutes 18 minutes just, oh wow 18 yeah. minutes okay you'll get to hear this amazing song welcome to the newsroom anyway so eli lake's uh commentary recommends today is sinatra at the sands uh by frank sinatra with count basie produced by Quincy Jones. And yesterday I recommended the Chilean movie No, and a reader wrote to me and said, No is a homophone. So I had some trouble trying to search it because I didn't know if you meant the word N-O or the word K-N-O-W. And it is no N-O, not K-N-O-W, because that was what you needed to vote if you wanted to oust Pinochet from power. You actually had to vote no rather than yes. And so this was the no campaign that the movie is about and that you can get on Amazon and YouTube and wherever for $3.99. So those are our recommends this week. Eli Lake, thank you so much as ever for joining thank us. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow. So for Abe, Christine, and Matt, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.